Have you ever noticed how the youngest child in a family gets away with more? I grew up as the middle child in the family, and let me tell you something I noticed. When my younger brother went off to college, somehow he managed to take an elective class called the History of Rock and Roll. And when my dad found out, somehow I did not hear him yelling, what, I paid for this? You've got to be kidding me. I guess my dad was just too tired by the time it got to child number three. But one of the rock and roll songs that my uh, younger brother heard when he was in college was George Michael's song, Faith. Do any of you remember that song? It was a song with a repetitive chorus, because I gotta have faith. I gotta have faith. I gotta have faith, faith, faith. I gotta have faith, faith, faith. Thank you. Now you know why I'm not on the worship team. And now you also realize uh, that if you remember this song, you're gonna be singing this song in your head for the rest of the day. So I am sorry about that. Anyway, did you notice that in this song about faith and in other rock and roll songs about faith, faith is never defined? You just got to have faith, even though you don't know what faith is. It seems that in rock and roll songs, faith is just a feeling. Faith is a positive outlook on life. Faith is something that you work up from within yourself. And this is why every single graduation that you have attended over the past several years has had some speaker tell the graduates, believe in yourself. Look within and have faith in yourself. That's what faith is. Now, as you might imagine, the Bible has a very different understanding of faith. Yes, the Bible agrees that you got to have faith. But in the book of Hebrews, the author has been writing about apostasy in chapter 10, which we just finished last week. He has been writing to those who have been tempted to lose their faith, to fall away from their faith in Jesus Christ. Apostates uh, appear at one time in their lives to be people of faith, but by the end of their lives, they wind up rejecting Jesus and walking away from the faith they supposedly had. And now in chapter 11, the author of Hebrews will say that faith is the cure for apostasy. You need faith, faith that lasts, Faith that endures throughout your entire life. Faith that perseveres. But what is faith? I'd like for us to look at Hebrews 11 today and see two different parts of the definition of faith. First of all, faith is a strong conviction in who and what you cannot see. This definition for faith is seen in verse 1 of Hebrews 11. Now, faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. So what is faith? It is not some vague feeling in your heart. No, faith is assurance. Faith is conviction. Faith is not thinking that maybe something will happen that God says. Instead, faith is assured that what is hoped for from God will become reality. Faith is convinced that the unseen promises of God will definitely be fulfilled. 
At the end of Hebrews 10, the author had told the readers essentially that you do got to have faith. He said in verse 39, But we are not of those who shrink back and are destroyed, but those who have faith and preserve their souls. Faith is convinced that what the unseen God has promised will most certainly be fulfilled. Our faith, then, is not in faith. Our faith has a definite object, and that object is God. We put our faith in God, not in faith. Now, it's interesting to me what we Christians are certain God is going to do. We are certain about things not seen, according to verse 1. There is no visible evidence to our eyes that what God has promised will come to pass. But we Christians believe what God has promised anyway. We have faith that the unseen God will do what he has promised, even though we can't see how. That is faith. It is a deep, personal trust that God's word and God's promise is true. Now, some of you might be concerned that this definition of faith means that you should never, ever have any doubts. Let me assure you that every Christian has doubts on occasion. If you came to church today with some level of doubt about what the Bible says, you are not alone. Don't be alarmed. Don't think this means that you don't have faith. But I As a person of faith, I would encourage you to do two things with your doubts. One, don't focus on those feelings of doubt. Focusing on those feelings of doubt will just lead you farther away from God and from his promises and from your faith. And two, I would encourage you, fight against your doubts. Don't be content to say, ah, I guess we just can't know what's true. I I guess I'm just an agnostic. No. Fight your doubts. Study the Bible. Ask questions of people of faith who can give you some answers. There are a lot of really intelligent Christians, very mature Christians, who can help you when you go through a season of doubt. So don't be alarmed by your doubts, but don't be content with your doubts either. Fight against those doubts. Verse 2 tells us that if we have strong convictions about God's promises, then we will be just like the Hebrew Christians' ancestors from the Old Testament. We read in verse 2, for by faith the people of old received their commendation. The Old Testament saints that we will read about in the rest of Hebrews chapter 11 were commended by God. They pleased God with their faith. How do they please God? Not by their good works, but by their faith. You see, it is always trust that God is looking for from us. Yes, our good works will come out of our faith, but what God wants to see in our hearts is trust in him. Trust in God communicates love to God. So it is trust that God wants to see. 
God wants us to keep trusting him to the end of our days. God wants us to trust what he has promised, even if those promises seem impossible to fulfill to us. So let me ask you today, what are some of those promises of God that seem impossible to you to be fulfilled right now? For some of you, it might be God's promise to provide for your needs. You just don't see how God will provide. For some of you, it might be God's promise that nothing can ever separate you from the love of Christ. You don't see much evidence right now of Jesus' love for you. For others of you, it might seem impossible to you that God will keep his promise to keep you from all evil. You see evil all around you in your life right now. And right now, it looks like evil is winning and you are losing. So what do you do to keep your faith? I think you keep your faith by remembering that our faith is in things not seen. We remember what is written in 2 Corinthians chapter 5 and verse 7. I'd like for us to read this verse out loud together from this picture behind me. We walk by faith, not by sight. You see, we cannot see with our eyes what God is promising. We can't see those things ahead of us. But we walk by faith anyway. A Christian family was invited to dinner by another family. And when they were called to the dinner table, the mother from the visiting family said to her young son, be sure to wash your hands, get the germs off. The little boy scowled at that moment, and he said, germs and Jesus, germs and Jesus. That's all I hear about, and I haven't seen either one of them. Yes, there are some things that you cannot see with your eyes, but those things are definitely real. One of the things that we did not see with our eyes that definitely happened was the creation of the universe. Verse 3 says, by faith, we understand that the universe was created by the word of God so that what is seen was not made out of things that are visible. None of us were there to witness the creation. No one was there, in fact, except God. Thus, we receive it by faith that God created the universe out of nothing. Creation was a miracle of God, and we embrace that miracle by faith. Now, does this mean that our faith in God's creation is groundless? Is there no evidence of a creator? No. Church, do you realize that modern science was first developed by Christians? Two Franciscan friars who lived in the 13th century, Roger Bacon and William of Ockham, laid the empirical and methodological foundations for the scientific method. Many, if not most, of the early scientists were all Christians. One such Christian a few centuries later after Roger Bacon and William of Ockham was Robert Boyle. 
Robert Boyle was the one who came up with Boyle's law that is used in chemistry. Robert Boyle was a man who loved Jesus so much that he was heavily invested in evangelism and Bible translation. He considered becoming a minister himself, but he decided that he could serve Jesus better as a scientist. So don't believe the lie that science has disproved the Bible and Christianity. The first scientists, they all believe that our universe was designed and created by God according to a blueprint that can be discerned by rational creatures like us. And many scientists today also believe that God created the world. Not every scientist is an atheist. In fact, there are many brilliant Christians who are scientists who teach at the world's leading universities today. We were not there to see how the universe was created. But there is scientific evidence of order and design in the universe. Our faith, then, is not blind. Our faith is backed up by evidence. In our faith in what we did not see in the past at the creation of the universe can help us to have faith for what we cannot see about our future. Hebrews 11 and verse 1 says that faith is the assurance of things hoped for. I think the author is thinking here about the return of Jesus for us as his church. Is that not our greatest hope when Christ will return? Isn't it our greatest hope when Jesus will come back to bring to us his eternal kingdom of joy and love and justice and righteousness? Isn't that our greatest hope? We have that hope. And what gives us the assurance that that will happen? How do we know that the promise of Jesus, that he will return and bring us his kingdom, how do we know for sure that that will happen? Can we see that kingdom coming with our physical eyes? No. We believe this promise by faith, just like we believe every other promise of Jesus, by faith. But the fact that there is evidence for the creation that we did not see in the past leads us to believe that there is also good grounds to believe that what Jesus says will happen in the future will definitely happen. We can walk by faith and not by sight when it comes to our future. Isn't that good news in scary times like these when no one knows what's going to happen? We can trust God with conviction for what is coming in life, no matter what that is. Faith is a conviction and that's what all of us as believers have. A conviction in someone we cannot see and in what we cannot see as well. Well, faith also, according to Hebrews 11, is lived out in the pilgrimage of our lives. We see each other's faith in how we live. Beginning in verse 4, the author writes about people from the Old Testament who have definitely lived out their faith. We are not the first people to take the journey of faith. Many people have walked the path of faith before us. 
So you are not alone in your faith. You are walking by faith not only with the people of this church. You are also walking by faith with people from ages past. These other believers were ordinary people who by the grace of God were able to do extraordinary things. The first believer mentioned in Hebrews 11:4 is Abel. You might remember him from the story of him and his brother Cain, where Cain eventually killed Abel. We read in Hebrews 11:4 by faith Abel offered to God a more acceptable sacrifice than Cain. So why was Abel's sacrifice more acceptable than his brother's? For one thing, Abel's offering flowed from his faith. The offering was a visible expression of the faith that Abel possessed. Anytime that you obey God, such obedience springs from faith. We read in verse 4, And through his faith, though he died, he still speaks. By contrast, it seems that the offering that Cain, his brother, offered up was not offered in faith. Cain did not trust in God. Well, how exactly did Abel obey God? We can read the story in Genesis chapter 4. And if you brought your Bible here today, and I hope you did, I'd invite you to turn back in your Bible to the very first book of the Bible, Genesis chapter 4, where we read the story of Cain and Abel. Genesis chapter 4, I'll begin reading in verse 3. In the course of time, Cain brought to the Lord an offering of the fruit of the ground. And Abel also brought of the firstborn of his flock and of their fat portions. And the Lord had regard for Abel and his offering, but for Cain and his offering, he had no regard. Abel then offered up to God a blood sacrifice as a symbol that sin must be paid for with blood. Cain, on the other hand, he only offered up to God grain. By offering a blood sacrifice in obedience to God, Abel lived out by his faith what we will later see is the theme of the entire book of Hebrews. We are reminded of this theme in Hebrews chapter 9 and verse 22. Let's read that verse together out loud. Without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sins. That's what Abel was saying to the world by offering up an animal sacrifice. He was saying that my sin needs to be covered by blood. This blood sacrifice was a symbol that his sin had to be paid for with blood. Cain, he was from the other end of the perspective. He said, I'll, I'll just give to God whatever I choose. So what do we learn about faith from Abel's story? True faith approaches God on his terms, not on ours. You cannot say to God like Cain did, God, I'll give to you what I want, not what you want. You cannot create your own religion and then tell God, well, God, that should be good enough. What I give you is good enough. We must obey God completely like Abel did. 
By sacrificing an animal, Abel was saying to God that he was a sinner who needed a sacrifice to be his substitute, to die for him. Abel was acknowledging that he needed grace from God to bring forgiveness for his sin. Have you done that? Have you put your faith in the fact that Christ died on the cross for your sins in your place? Or are you relying on a religion of your own good works to bring you favor from God, to bring you forgiveness? The second Old Testament saint who lived out his faith, who is mentioned in Hebrews 11, is the man Enoch. Now, some of you at this point might be saying to yourself, who? Who is Enoch? We have already discovered that the author of the book of Hebrews knows the story of the Old Testament very well. The story of Melchizedek in the book of Genesis only lasts for three verses. But the author of Hebrews took just the whole of Hebrews chapter 7 to talk about Melchizedek and his implications for us, that Melchizedek was a foreshadowing of Jesus. Melchizedek showed by his life that he was an eternal priest and king, just like Christ. So who you ask is Enoch. Enoch has one more verse written about him in Genesis than Melchizedek did. Enoch's story lasts for four verses in Genesis chapter 5. The important thing about Enoch that is mentioned is found at the beginning of Genesis chapter 5 and verse 22. So if you turn there in Genesis 5 and verse 22, we see at the beginning of that verse these important words. Enoch walked with God. That's who he was. He was a man who walked with God. His faith, then, was relational. Enoch walked with God just like you might walk with a friend and have a conversation with a friend. He walked and talked with God just like he was walking and talking with a friend. And how did God reward Enoch's faith? In a remarkable way. We read in Genesis chapter 5 and verse 24 that Enoch walked with God and he was not, for God took him. Enoch then never died. Hebrews chapter 11 and verse 5 emphasizes this truth, that Enoch did not see death. This is amazing, isn't it? This is an unusual Bible story. Just about everyone in the Bible dies. But here is a man, Enoch, who never dies. I don't think the author of Hebrews was trying to tell his readers that they would escape from death. Instead, I think the author is saying that just like Enoch escaped from death, the readers will finally triumph over death themselves when Jesus returns and gives to us our resurrection bodies. Enoch escaped from death because Hebrews 11.5 says that Enoch pleased God. Now, if you please God by living by faith and walking by faith, what kind of reward will come to you? You will be raised from the dead and you will live with God and walk with God for all eternity. 
Is there anything better than that? Is there anything that we could want more than that? To be in the presence of God and to enjoy him for all eternity. So what do we learn about faith from Enoch's story? Faith is not merely a matter of agreeing with certain facts in the Bible. It's not agreeing merely with certain facts about God. Faith is about knowing God as a person, much as you might know someone in your family that you have an intimate relationship with. Yes, a person with faith believes that God exists, according to verse 6. You believe this fact about God. But a person with faith also knows God well enough to know that God is good. God will reward those who have faith in him, according to verse 6. You can only know that God is the kind of God who rewards you if you are in relationship with him, if you are walking with him on a daily basis. So do you know, beyond the shadow of a doubt, that God will reward you? Do you know that? Do you know deep in your heart that God is good? Or do you question that on a regular basis? Do you know that it's worth it to walk with God? Are you spending time with him in reading the Bible and in praying and in going to church? It's worth it. Walking with God is worth it. And that's what Enoch believed. And he was rewarded for his faith. The third person mentioned in Hebrews 11 who walked by faith, who lived out his faith, is Noah. We read in verse 7 of Hebrews 11 that by faith, Noah, being warmed by God concerning events as yet unseen, in reverent fear constructed an ark for the saving of his household. By this he condemned the world and became an heir of the righteousness that comes by faith. You see, God was going to flood the entire world because of his judgment on their sin. So he told Noah to prepare, to build an ark, to save both himself and all of his family. Now, this boat that Noah would build was huge. It would be 510 feet long, which is more than one and a half football fields long. Can you imagine building such a, a massive boat? It would take Noah years and years to build this boat before the flood came. The other thing about this boat is that it was not going to be built at a place like Bath Ironworks with all kinds of other ships around it built in the water. Noah instead was going to build his boat on dry land in a place like Mount Katahdin. Now, what do you think people would ask Noah from the neighborhood as they walked by and saw him building this huge boat? They might have asked, Noah, where's the water? <laughs> Noah, are you seeing just one psychologist or a whole team of psychologists? What are you doing? Now, in spite of the mockery of the crowd, Noah kept right on building his boat. He had faith in what he could not see. He had faith 
in God's promised warning. He had faith in the unseen. Do you? Are you willing to believe and obey God, even when it doesn't make any sense to you? Noah showed that faith means trusting God even when you don't have all the answers. Not too many people these days have the answers about the future of our country. Nobody knows what's going to happen, even tomorrow, much less a month from now. But you can still have faith. You can still trust God, even when it's hard. And a major part of faith, as Noah's life shows, is just obeying God. Do what God says. That is faith. And that kind of faith condemns the world. It judges the world for its own lack of faith in God and his goodness. It judges a world that does not trust in God. Church, I want to remind you today that your faith is not irrational. Your faith is a strong conviction in the unseen God who speaks promises to us about things that we cannot see. But just because we cannot see these things does not mean that they aren't real. So hold on then tight to your faith and live out your faith, just like Abel and Enoch and Noah did. For those three people reflect the order of the Christian life. We first trust in the sacrifice of Christ, like Abel trusted in the sacrifice of an animal. And then we walk with God, like Enoch did, in intimate fellowship with God. And then we obey God in all things like Noah did. Trust in God's sacrifice. Walk with God. Obey God. That is the life of faith. It is a life that God will richly reward. Let's pray together. God, we thank you this morning that you have given to us the gift of faith. We are grateful for it, for there are so many things that we cannot see, but you have given us confidence and conviction and hope that these things are real. They will happen because you are faithful to your promises. And so I pray today for those whose faith is wavering. I pray for those who have many doubts today. I pray that you would strengthen their faith. I pray that in the days to come, they will trust in you. And I pray that they will live out their faith in the week to come. In your name we pray. Amen.